Section twenty nine of Volume One of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume One of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter fifteen Conquest of England by the Normans. Part two. From the time of Rollo's settlement in Normandy, the communications of the Normans with England had become more and more frequent, and important for the two countries. The success of the invasions of the Danes in England in the tenth century, and the reigns of three kings of the Danish line, had obliged the princes of Saxon race to take refuge in Normandy, the duke of which, Richard I, had given his daughter Emma in marriage to their grandfather, Ethelred II. When, at the death of the last Danish king, Hardicanute, the Saxon prince Edward ascended the throne of his fathers, he had passed twenty-seven years of exile in Normandy, and he returned to England almost a stranger, in the words of the chronicles, to the country of his ancestors, far more Norman than Saxon in his manners, tastes, and language, and surrounded by Normans, whose numbers and prestige under his reign increased from day to day. A hot rivalry, nationally as well as courtly, grew up between them and the Saxons, at the head of these latter was Godwin, Count of Kent, and his five sons, the eldest of whom, Harold, was destined before long to bear the whole brunt of the struggle. Between these powerful rivals, Edward the Confessor, a pacific, pious, gentle, and undecided king, wavered incessantly, at one time trying to resist, and at another compelled to yield to the pretensions and seditions by which he was beset. In 1051 the Saxon party and its head, Godwin, had risen in revolt. Duke William, on invitation perhaps from King Edward, paid a brilliant visit to England, where he found Normans everywhere established and powerful, in church as well as in state, in command of the fleets, ports, and principal English places. King Edward received him as his own son, gave him arms, horses, hounds, and hawking-birds, and sent him home full of presents and hopes. The chronicler, Ingulf, who accompanied William on his return to Normandy, and remained attached to him as private secretary, affirms that, during this visit, not only was there no question, between King Edward and the Duke of Normandy, of the latter's possible secession to the throne of England, but that never, as yet, had this probability occupied the attention of William. It is very doubtful whether William had said nothing upon the subject to King Edward at that time, and it is certain, from William's own testimony, that he had for a long while been thinking about it. Four years after this visit of the Duke to England, King Edward was reconciled to and lived on good terms with the family of the Godwins. Their father was dead, and the eldest son, Harold, asked the king's permission to go to Normandy, and claim the release of his brother and nephew, who had been left as hostages in the keeping of Duke William. The king did not approve of the project. "'I have no wish to constrain thee,' said he to Harold, "'but if thou go, it will be without my consent.' and assuredly thy trip will bring some misfortune upon thee in our country. I know Duke William and his crafty spirit. He hates thee, and will grant thee not unless he see his advantage therefrom. The only way to make him give up the hostages will be to send some other than thyself. Harold, however, persisted and went. William received him with apparent cordiality, promised him the release of the two hostages, escorted him and his comrades from castle to castle, and from entertainment to entertainment, made them knights of the Grand Norman Order, and even invited them, by way of trying their new spurs, to accompany him on a little warlike expedition he was about to undertake in Brittany. 
Harold and his comrades behaved gallantly, and he and William shared the same tent and the same table. On returning, as they trotted side by side, William turned the conversation upon his youthful connection with the King of England. "'When Edward and I,' said he to the Saxon, "'were living like brothers under the same roof, he promised, if he ever became King of England, to make me heir to his kingdom. I should very much like thee, Harold, to help me to realize this promise, and be assured that, if by thy aid I obtain the kingdom, whatsoever thou askest of me I will grant it forthwith. Harold, in surprise and confusion, answered by an assent which he tried to make as vague as possible. William took it as positive. Since thou dost consent to serve me, said he, thou must engage to fortify the castle of Dover, dig a well of fresh water there, and put it in the hands of my men-at-arms. Thou must also give me thy sister to be married to one of my barons, and thou must thyself espouse my daughter Adele. Harold, not witting, says the chronicler, how to escape from this pressing danger, promised all the duke asked of him, reckoning, doubtless, on disregarding his engagement, and for the moment William asked him nothing more. But a few days afterwards he summoned, at Avranches, according to some, and at Bayeux, according to others, and, more probably still, at bonville sur touc his Norman barons, and in the midst of this assembly, at which Harold was present, William, seated with his naked sword in his hand, caused to be brought and placed upon a table covered with the cloth of two gold reliquaries. "'Harold,' said he, "'I call upon thee, in presence of this noble assemblage, to confirm by oath the promise thou didst make me, to wit, to aid me to obtain the kingdom of England after the death of King Edward, to espouse my daughter Adele, and to send me thy sister to be married to one of my people. Harold, who had not expected this public summons, nevertheless did not hesitate any more than he had hesitated in his private conversation with William. He drew near, laid his hand on the two reliquaries, and swore to observe, in the best of his power, his agreement with the Duke, should he live and God help. "'God help!' repeated those who were present. William made a sign, the cloth of gold was removed, and there was discovered a tub filled to the edge with bones and relics of all the saints that could be got together. The chronicler-poet, Robert Wace, who alone and long afterwards recounts this last particular, adds that Harold was visibly troubled at the sight of this saintly heap, but he had sworn. It is honourable to human nature not to be indifferent to oaths, even when those who exact them have but small reliance upon them, and when he who takes them has but small intention of keeping them. And so Harold departed laden with presents, leaving William satisfied but not overconfident. When, on returning to England, Harold told King Edward what had passed between William and himself, "'Did I not warn thee,' said the king, "'that I knew William, and that thy journey would bring great misfortunes upon thyself and upon our nation? Grant heaven that those misfortunes come not during my life!' The king's wish was not granted. He fell ill, and on the 5th of January, 1066, he lay on his couch almost at the point of death. Harold and his kindred entered the chamber, and prayed the king to name a successor by whom the kingdom might be governed securely. "'Ye know,' said Edward, "'that I have left my kingdom to the Duke of Normandy, and are there not here among ye those who have sworn to assure his succession?' Harold advanced, and once more asked the king on whom the crown should devolve. "'Take it, if it is thy wish, Harold,' said Edward, "'but the gift will be thy ruin. Against the duke and his barons thy power will not suffice.' Harold declared that he feared neither the Norman nor any other foe. The king, vexed at this importunity, turned round in his bed, saying, Let the English make king of whom they will, Harold or another, I consent. 
and shortly after expired. The very day after the celebration of his obsequies, Harold was proclaimed king by his partisans, amidst no small public disquietude, and Aldred, Archbishop of York, lost no time in anointing him. William was in his park of Rouvray, near Rouen, trying a bow and arrows for the chase, when a faithful servant arrived from England, to tell him that Edward was dead and Harold proclaimed king. William gave his bow to one of his people, and went back to his palace at Rouen, where he paced about in silence, sitting down, rising up, leaning upon a bench, without opening his lips and without any one of his people's daring to address a word to him. There entered his seneschal, William de Bretonil, of whom, "'What ails the duke?' asked they who were present. "'You will soon know,' answered he. Then, going up to the duke, he said, "'Wherefore, conceal your tidings, my lord. All the city knows that King Edward is dead, and that Harold has broken his oath to you, and had himself crowned king.' "'Aye,' said William, "'it is that which doth weigh me down.' "'My lord,' said William Fitz Osborne, a gallant knight and a confidential friend of the duke, "'none should be wroth over what can be mended. It depends but on you to stop the mischief Harold is doing you. You shall destroy him, if it please you. You have right, you have good men and true, to serve you. You need have but courage. Set on boldly.' William gathered together his most important and most trusted counsellors, and they were unanimous in urging him to resent the perjury and injury. He sent to Harold a messenger charged to say, William, Duke of the Normans, doth recall to thee the oath thou swearest to him with thy mouth and with thy hand, on real and saintly relics. It is true, answered Harold, that I swore, but on compulsion, I promised what did not belong to me. My kingship is not mine own. I cannot put it off from me without the consent of the country. I cannot any the more, without the consent of the country, espouse a foreigner. As for my sister, whom the duke claims for one of his chieftains, she died within the year. If he will, I will send him the corpse. William replied without any violence, claiming the conditions sworn, and especially Harold's marriage with his daughter Adele. For all answer to this summons Harold married a Saxon, sister of two powerful Saxon chieftains, Edwin and Morcar. There was an open rapture, and William swore that within the year he would go and claim, at the sword's point, payment of what was due to him, on the very spot where Harold thought himself to be most firm on his feet. And he set himself to the work. But being as far-sighted as he was ambitious, he resolved to secure for his enterprise the sanction of religious authority and the formal assent of the estates of Normandy. Not that he had any inclination to subordinate his power to that of the Pope. Five years previously, Robert de Grandsmenil, abbot of St. Evreul, with whom William had got embroiled, had claimed to re-enter his monastery as master by virtue solely of an order from Pope Nicholas II. "'I will listen to the legates of the Pope, the common father of the faithful,' said William, "'if they come to me to speak of the Christian faith of religion. But if a monk of my estates permit himself a single word beyond his place, I will have him hanged by his cowl from the highest oak of the nearest forest.' When, in one thousand, he denounced to Pope Alexander II the perjury of Harold, asking him at the same time to do him justice, he made no scruple about promising that, if the Pope authorized him to right himself by war, he would bring back the kingdom of England to obedience to the Holy See. He had Lanfranc for his negotiator with the court of Rome, and Pope Alexander II for chief counsellor the celebrated monk Hildebrand, who was destined to succeed him under the name of Gregory VII. The opportunity of extending the empire of the Church was too tempting to be spurned, 
and her future head too bold not to seize it, whatever might be the uncertainty and danger of the issue, and in spite of hesitation on the part of some of the Pope's advisers, the question was promptly decided in accordance with William's demand. Harold and his adherents were excommunicated, and on committing his bull to the hands of William's messenger, the Pope added a banner of the Roman Church, and a ring containing, it is said, a hair of St. Peter set in a diamond. The estates of Normandy were less easy to manage. William called them together at Libon, and several of his vassals showed a zealous readiness to furnish him with vessels and victual, and to follow him beyond the sea. But others declared that they were not bound to any such service, and that they would not lend themselves to it. They had calls enough already, and had nothing more to spare. William Fitz Osborne scouted these objections. "'He is your lord, and hath need of you,' said he to the recalcitrants. "'You ought to offer yourselves to him, and not wait to be asked. If he succeed in his purpose, you will be more powerful as well as he. If you fail him, and he succeed without you, he will remember it. Show him that you love him, and what ye do, do with a good grace.' The discussion was keen. Many persisted in saying, "'True, he is our lord, but if we pay him his rents, that should suffice. We are not bound to go and serve beyond the seas. We are already much burdened for his wars.' It was at last agreed that Fitz Osborne should give the Duke the Assembly's reply, for he knew well, they said, the ability of each. "'If ye mind not to do what I shall say,' said Fitz Osborne, "'charge me not therewith.' "'We will be bound by it, and will do it,' was the cry, amidst the general confusion." They repaired to the Duke's presence. "'My lord,' said Fitzosborne, "'I trow that there be not in the whole world such folk as these. You know the trouble and labour they have already undergone in supporting your rights, and they are minded to do still more, and serve you at all points, this side the sea and t'other. Go you before, and they will follow you, and spare them in nothing. As for me, I will furnish you with sixty vessels, manned with good fighters.' "'Nay, nay!' cried several of those presents, prelates and barons, we charged you not with such reply. When he hath business in his own country, we will do him the service we owe him. We be not bound to serve him in conquering another's territory, or to go beyond the sea for him. And they gathered themselves together in knots with much uproar. William was very wroth, says the chronicler. He retired to a chamber apart, summoned those in whom he had most confidence, and by their advice called before him his barons, each separately, and asked them if they were willing to help him. He had no intention, he told them, of doing them wrong, nor would he and his, now or hereafter, ever cease to treat them in perfect courtesy, and he would give them, in writing, such assurances as they were minded to devise. The majority of his people agreed to give him, more or less, according to circumstances, and he had everything reduced to writing. At the same time he made an appeal to all his neighbours, Bretons, Mansot, and Angevines, hunting up soldiers wherever he could find them, and promising all who desired them lands in England if he effected its conquest. Lastly, he repaired in person, first to Philip I, King of France, his suzerain, and then to Baldwin V, Count of Flanders, his father-in-law, asking for their assistance for his enterprise. Philip gave a formal refusal. "'What the Duke demands of you,' said his advisers, "'is to his own profit and to your hurt. If you aid him, your country will be much burdened, and if the duke fail, you will have the English your foes for ever. The Count of Flanders made a show of a similar refusal, but privately he authorized William to raise soldiers in Flanders, and pressed his vassals to follow him. William, having thus hunted up and collected all the forces he could hope for, thought only of putting them in motion, and of hurrying on the preparations for his departure. 
whilst in obedience to his orders the whole expedition troops and ships were collected at dive he received from conan the second duke of brittany this message i learn that thou art now minded to go beyond sea and conquer for thyself the kingdom of england at the moment of starting for jerusalem robert duke of normandy whom thou feignest to regard as thy father left all his heritage to alain my father and his cousin but thou and thy accomplices slew my father with poison at vimeux in normandy afterwards thou didst invade his territory because i was too young to defend it and contrary to all right seeing that thou art a bastard thou hast kept it until this day now therefore either give me back this normandy which thou owest me or i will make war upon thee with all my forces at this message say the chronicles william was at first somewhat dismayed but a breton lord who had sworn fidelity to the two counts and bore messages from one to the other rubbed poison upon the inside of conan's hunting-horn of his horse's reins and of his gloves conan having unwittingly put his gloves and handled the reins of his horse lifted his hands to his face and the touch having filled him with poisonous infection he died soon after to the great sorrow of his people for he was an able and brave man and inclined to justice and he who had betrayed him quitted before long the army of conan and informed duke william of his death conan is not the only one of william's foes whom he was suspected of making away with by poison there are no proofs but contemporary assertions are positive and the public of the time believed them without surprise being as unscrupulous about means as ambition and bold in aim william was not of those whose character repels such an accusation what however diminishes the suspicion is that after and in spite of conan's death several breton knights and amongst others two sons of count eudes his uncle attended at the trysting-place of the norman troops and took part in the expedition Dives was the place of assemblage appointed for fleet and army william repaired thither about the end of august ten sixty six but for several weeks contrary winds prevented him from putting to sea some vessels which made the attempt perished in the tempest and some of the volunteer adventurers got disgusted and deserted william maintained strict discipline amongst this multitude forbidding plunder so strictly that the cattle fed in the fields in full security the soldiers grew tired of waiting in idleness and often in sickness yon is a madman said they who is minded to possess himself of another's land god is against the design and so refuses us a wind about the twentieth of september the weather changed the fleet got ready but could only go and anchor at st valery at the mouth of the somme there it was necessary to wait several more days impatience and disquietude were redoubled and there appeared in the heavens a star with a tail a certain sign of great things to come william had the shrine of st valery brought out and paraded about being more impatient in his soul than anybody but ever confident in his will and his good fortune there was brought to him a spy whom harold had sent to watch the forces and plans of the enemy and william dismissed him saying harold hath no need to take any care or be at any charges to know how we be and what we be doing he shall see for himself and shall feel it before the end of the year at last on the twenty seventh of september ten sixty six the sun rose on a calm sea with a favourable wind and towards evening the fleet set out the mora the vessel on which william was and which had been given to him by his wife matilda led the way and a figure in gilded bronze some say in gold representing their youngest son william had been placed on the prow with the face towards england being a better sailor than the others this ship was soon a long way ahead 
and William had a mariner sent to the top of the mainmast to see if the fleet were following. "'I see naught but sea and sky,' said the mariner. William had the ship brought to, and the second time the mariner said, "'I see four ships.' Before long he cried, "'I see a forest of masts and sails.' On the twenty-ninth of September, St. Michael's Day, the expedition arrived off the coast of England, at Pevensey, near Hastings, and when the tide had ebbed, and the ships remained aground on the strand, says the chroniclers, the landing was effected without obstacles, and not a Saxon soldier appeared on the coast. William was the last to leave his ship, and on setting foot on the sand he made a false step and fell. "'Bad sign!' was muttered around him. "'God have us in his keeping!' "'What say you, lords?' cried William. "'By the glory of God I have grasped this land with my hands. All that there is of it is ours.' With what forces William undertook the conquest of England, how many ships composed his fleet, and how many men were aboard the ships, are questions impossible to be decided with any precision. As we have frequently before had occasion to remark, amidst the exaggerations and disagreements of chroniclers. Robert Wace reports, in his Romance of Rue, that he had heard from his father, one of William's servants, on this expedition, that the fleet numbered six hundred and ninety-six vessels, but he had found in divers writings that there were more than three thousand. Monsieur Augustin Thierry, after his learned researches, says, in his History of the Conquest of England by the Normans, that four hundred vessels of four sails, and more than a thousand transport ships, moved out into the open sea, to the sound of trumpets and of a great cry of joy raised by sixty thousand throats. It is probable that the estimate of the fleet is pretty accurate, and that of the army exaggerated. We saw in 1830 what efforts and pains it required, amidst the power and intelligent ability of modern civilization, to transport from France to Algeria thirty-seven thousand men aboard three squadrons, comprising six hundred and seventy-five ships of all sorts. Granted that in the eleventh century there was more haphazard than in the nineteenth, and that there was less care for human life on the eve of a war, still, without a doubt, the armament of Normandy in 1066 was not to be compared with that of France in 1830 and yet William's intention was to conquer England, whereas Charles X thought only of chastising the day of Algiers. Whilst William was making for the southern coast of England, Harold was repairing by forced marches to the north in order to defend, against the rebellion of his brother Tostig and the invasion of a Norwegian army. His short-lived kingship thus menaced, at two ends of the country, by two formidable enemies. On the 25th of September, 1066, he gained at York a brilliant victory over his northern foe, and wounded as he was, he no sooner learned that Duke William had on the 29th pitched his camp and planted his flag at Pevensey, than he set out in haste for the south. As he approached, William received, from what source is not known, this message, King Harold hath given battle to his brother Tostig and the King of Norway. He hath slain them both, and hath destroyed their army." He is returning at the head of numerous and valiant warriors, against whom thine own, I trove, will be worth no more than wretched curs. Thou passest for a man of wisdom and prudence. Be not rash. Plunge not thyself into danger. I adjure thee to abide in thy entrenchments, and not to come really to blows. I thank thy master, answered William, for his prudent counsel, albeit he might have given it to me without insult. Carry him back this reply. I will not hide behind ramparts. I will come to blows with Harold as soon as I may, and with the aid of heaven's good will I would trust in the valour of my men against his, even though I had but ten thousand to lead against his sixty thousand. But the proud confidence of William did not affect his prudence. 
he received from Harold a message wherein the Saxon, affirming his right to the kingship by virtue of the Saxon laws and the last words of King Edward, summoned him to evacuate England with all his people, on which condition alone he engaged to preserve friendship with him, and all agreements between them as to Normandy. After having come to an understanding with his barons, William maintained his right to the crown of England by virtue of the first decision of King Edward, and the oaths of Harold himself. I am ready, said he, to uphold my cause against him by the forms of justice, either according to the law of the Normans or according to that of the Saxons, as he pleases. If, by virtue of equity, Normans or English decide that Harold has a right to possess the kingdom, let him possess it in peace. If they acknowledge that it is to me that the kingdom ought to belong, let him give it up to me. If he refuses these conditions, I do not think it just that my people or his, who are not a whit to blame for our quarrel, should slay one another in battle. I am ready to maintain at the price of my head against his, that it is to me and not to him that the kingdom of England belongs. At this proposition Harold was troubled, and remained a while without replying. Then, as the monk was urgent, let the Lord God, said he, judge this day betwixt me and William as to what is just. The negotiation continued, and William summed it all up in these terms, which the monk reported to Harold in presence of the English chieftains, My lord, the Duke of Normandy biddeth you to do one of these things. Give up to him the kingdom of England, and take his daughter in marriage, as you swear to him on the holy relics, or, respecting the question between him and you, submit yourself to the Pope's decision, or fight with him body to body, and let him who is victorious and forces his enemy to yield have the kingdom. Harold replied, without opinion or advice taken, says the chronicle, I will not cede him the kingdom, I will not abide by the Pope's award, and I will not fight with him. William, still in concert with his barons, made a farther advance. If Harold will come to an agreement with me, he said, I will leave him all the territory beyond the Humber, towards Scotland. My lord, said the barons to the duke, make an end of these parleys. If we must fight, let it be soon, for every day come folk to Harold. By my faith, said the duke, if we agree not on terms to-day, to-morrow we will join battle. The third proposal for an agreement was as little successful as the former two. On both sides there was no belief in peace, and they were eager to decide the battle once for all. Some of the Saxon chieftains advised Harold to fall back on London, and ravage all the country, so as to starve out the invaders. "'By my faith,' said Harold, "'I will not destroy the country I have in keeping. I, with my people, will fight.' "'Abide in London,' said his younger brother Gurth. "'Thou canst not deny that, perforce or by free will, thou didst swear to Duke William. But as for us we have sworn not. We will fight for our country. If we alone fight, thy cause will be good in any case. If we fly, thou shalt rally us. If we fall, thou shalt avenge us.' Harold rejected this advice, considering it shame to his past life to turn his back, whatever the peril. Certain of his people, who he had sent to reconnoitre the Norman army, returned, saying that there were more priests in William's camp than warriors in his own, for the Normans, at this period, wore shaven chins and short hair, whilst the English let hair and beard grow. "'Ye do err,' said Harold, "'these be not priests, but good men-at-arms, who will show us what they can do.' On the eve of the battle, the Saxons passed the night in amusement, eating, drinking, and singing, with great uproar. The Normans, on the contrary, were preparing their arms, saying their prayers, and confessing to their priests, all who would. On the 14th of October, 1066, when Duke William put on his armour, his coat of mail was given to him the wrong way. 
"'Bad omen!' cried some of his people. "'If such a thing had happened to us, we would not fight to-day.' "'Be not disquieted,' said the Duke. "'I have never believed in sorcerers and diviners, and I never liked them. I believe in God, and in Him I put my trust.' He assembled his men-at-arms, and setting himself upon a high place, so that all might hear him, he said to them, "'My true and loyal friends, ye have crossed the seas for love of me, and for that I cannot thank ye as I ought. But I will make what return I may, and what I have ye shall have. I am not come only to take what I demanded, or to get my rights, but to punish felonies, treasons, and breaches of faith committed against our people by the men of this country.' Think, moreover, what great honour ye will have to-day if the day be ours. And bethink ye that, if ye be discomfited, ye be dead men without help, for ye have not whither ye may retreat, seeing that our ships be broken up, and our mariners be here with us. He who flies will be a dead man, he who fights will be saved. For God's sake let each man do his duty, trust we in God, and the day will be ours. The address was too long for the Duke's faithful comrade, William Fitz Osborne. "'My lord,' said he, "'we dally. Let us all to arms and forward, forward.' The army got in motion, starting from the hill of Telham or Heathland, according to Mr. Freeman, marching to attack the English on the opposite hill of Senlath. A Norman, called Telfair, who sang very well, and rode a horse which was very fast, came up to the duke. "'My lord,' said he, "'I have served you long, and you owe me for all my service. Pay me to-day, an it please you. Grant unto me, for recompense in full, to strike the first blow in the battle.' "'I grant it,' quoth the duke. So Telfair darted before him, singing the deeds of Charlemagne, of Roland, of Oliver, and of the vassals who fell at Ronskval. And as he sang, he played with his sword, throwing it up into the air and catching it in his right hand, and the Normans followed, repeating his songs and crying, "'God help! God help!' The English, entrenched upon a plateau towards which the Normans were ascending, awaited the assault, shouting and defying the foe. The battle thus begun lasted nine hours, with equal obstinacy on both sides, and varied success from hour to hour. Harold, though wounded at the commencement of the fray, did not cease for a moment to fight, on foot, with his two brothers beside him, and around him the troops of London, who had the privilege of forming the king's guard when he delivered a battle. Rudely repulsed at the first charge, some bodies of Norman troops fell back in disorder, and a rumour spread amongst them that the duke was slain but William threw himself before the fugitives, and taking off his helmet, cried, "'Look at me! Here I am! I live! And by God's help will conquer!' So they returned to the combat. But the English were firm, the Normans could not force their entrenchments, and William ordered his men to feign a retreat, and all but a flight. At this sight the English bore down in pursuit, and still Norman fled and Saxon pursued, until a trumpeter, who had been ordered by the Duke thus to turn back the Normans, began to sound the recall. Then were seen the Normans turning back to face the English, and attacking them with their swords, and amongst the English some flying, some dying, some asking mercy in their own tongue. The struggle once more became general and fierce. William had three horses killed under him, but he jumped immediately upon a fresh steed, and left not long avenged the death of that which had but lately carried him. At last the entrenchments of the English were stormed. Harold fell, mortally wounded by an arrow which pierced his skull, his two brothers and his bravest comrades fell at his side. The fight was prolonged between the English dispersed and the Normans remorselessly pursuing. The standards sent from Rome to the Duke of Normandy had replaced the Saxon flag on the very spot where Harold had fallen, and all around the ground continued to get covered with dead and dying, 
fruitless victims of the passions of the combatants. Next day William went over the field of battle, and he was heard to say, in a tone of mingled triumph and sorrow, "'Here is verily a lake of blood!' There was, long after the Battle of Senlac, or Hastings, as it is commonly called, a patriotic superstition in the country to the effect that, when the rain had moistened the soil, there were to be seen traces of blood on the ground where it had taken place. End of chapter 15, part 2